Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Thursday Night Teachings. And we're going to start tonight with setting the motivation for being here together. We have been circling in cyclic existence since beginningless time, which I think for most of our minds is pretty hard to grok. And during those beginningless cycles of samsara, we have been here, there, and everywhere. We have been gods and demigods. We've been animals. We've been humans, hungry ghosts, hell beings. We've resided in the form and formless realms and deep states of samadhi. And yet, here we are, still cycling in samsara, under the control of afflictions and karma, sabotaged by our self-centered thought, and continually struggling with the amnesia that comes from the ignorance that keeps us from seeing reality as it really is. And we haven't created the causes and conditions when we have met the Buddhist teachings to be able to have the determination, the mind, the motivation to enter the path and keep going. But here we are, in this extraordinary, precious human life, with qualified Mahayana teachers, with Dharma friends, all the freedoms and fortunes that come with precious human life. And so why we have our wits about us, why we have these remarkable, rare causes and conditions, it set our motivation firmly on the path to not fall into complacency, not fall into discouragement as best as we can, and to know that we are doing the best we can, taking each moment, taking the teachings into our practice, taking the teachings into our lives. So now that we have met the Buddha's teachings once again in extraordinary circumstances, may we set our determination to keep the momentum going now and in all future lives, not to be waylaid by the self-centered thought to try and understand how reality exists, to open our hearts to developing bodhicitta so it, it may never fail, may never succumb to the self-centered thought, so that we may be all awakened for the benefit of all beings who we depend on for our awakening and who deeply depend on us to awaken. And so tonight as we go over the last of the quiz, let's keep that in our minds and hearts and why we're here, how precious this opportunity is, and to do our best to hold it in our hearts, that deep motivation to become awakened for the benefit of all. Let's set that determination. 
joy in our hearts. With a curiosity. Well, we are in the home stretch here, folks. The last four of Venerable 16 questions on the grounds and pets. And I personally have found, um, I think we've been doing these quizzes since the uh, four establishments of mindfulness, I think we started. And um, I don't know whether she brought up the idea or we made a request, but we figured out that if we were going to have any understanding of these profound, vast teachings that she's been giving us in the past few years that we needed to have some sort of structure that would give us an opportunity to revisit the teachings. Um, and so the quizzes I have found personally very um, beneficial because I forget almost everything I hear the first time, so I've got to revisit things. Um, clean up my notes, which I'm horrified to see the chaos that's in them and the, the half, half-truths that are in them too. Um, so it's been really a lot of fun and challenging too to do the, the quizzes. These are very, very um, difficult and challenging teachings. But um, let's see where we can go and how we can support each other tonight on the last four. And they are interactive, some a little bit more straightforward and some definitely I'm going to need your um, participation. Okay, so we are at number 13. What are the 37 harmonies or wings with awakening? And uh, we took the eight Mahayana precepts this morning, and there's a line in the precepts that says the uh, 37 aids to enlightenment. So I think we're talking about the same ones here. Um, So I just wanted to start off with sharing a few of the beautiful quotes because the 37 harmonies come into the Bodhisattva practice and the path um, on the fourth ground, which is the ground of the radiant. And so I want to um, just start the... uh, question off on the beautiful verses by Nagarjuna and also Maitreya. The fourth is called the radiant because the light of true wisdom arises in which the Bodhisattva cultivates supremely all the harmonies with enlightenment. Through the maturation of these qualities, the Bodhisattva becomes a, a kind of the gods in the land without combat. He or she is skilled in quelling the arising of the view that the transitory collection is a real self. Maitreya says, because of possessing factors harmonious with enlightenment, burning forth like light, this ground burns away the two whereby it is called the radiant. And then finally, Nagarjuna's praise of the element of qualities, this ground, due to being illuminated by the light of constant virtue, and encircled by the light of the exalted wisdom that has abandoned commotion is asserted as the radiant. So the 37 harmonies come onto the Bodhisattva path on the fourth ground. And a few things about this fourth ground. It's called radiant because the light of true wisdom arises in which the Bodhisattva cultivates supremely all the harmonies. It, uh, the Bodhisattva achieves the 12 sets of qualities increased a trillion times. In subsequent attainment, he or she amasses the collection of merit for the sake 
of abandoning the big of the middling afflictive obscurations on the path of meditation. When this bodhisattva sees the signs of being able to abandon them, the Venable says they actually have a sense that they're getting close. They enter into meditative equipoise on emptiness where they enter the uninterrupted path where they are abandoning the big of the middling of the afflictive obscurations and move into the liberated path in which one's meditative consciousness becomes an actual antidote to those obstructions and then simultaneously enter the fifth ground. It is also during this ground where the Bodhisattva is perfecting the um, far-reaching practice of joyous effort, abandoning the three types of laziness, whether asleep or dreaming. They are the principal practices a Bodhisattva does and the qualities they develop. And this is whether they are on the disciple's path, the hero, the solitary realizer, or Bodhisattvas. So these practices are the fundamental and the universal vehicle practices. So let's go through them. So let's start with the first four. What do we got? I'll count them up. Which are? Okay, that's easy enough. We have anybody want to add anything? Because, you know, we can go through this list very, very quickly. But if anybody wants to add something, please feel free. Um, one of the things that they did say is that the uh, four establishments of mindfulness are the basis on which all these qualities are built upon. And um, so they are the first four, and then everything builds on top. So there's four. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where I think we've had some similar questions and on this one Venerable said to remind us that all the practices eliminate different obscurations and they don't all line up because we are eliminating them and practicing them from the first ground up and she said not to think of them very sort of linearly so I would say, I, I don't know the answer to your question. So maybe it's a realization. Does anybody have any thoughts? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the four establishments of mindfulness, Venerable Chini wants to know they've been practicing them from the get-go, and why now do they become on the forefront of this fourth ground? And we're thinking that, you know, they're just deepening the understanding, the realization of them. Then the book, do you think? So when they start really practicing them. So by now, they've got them in their minds, their mental continuum on some deeper, subtle level because a lot of these was um, coarse and subtle forms of all of these practices and I'm sure at this point they're getting to be quite subtle.
establishment of mindfulness. So on the path of accumulation, Venerable Jigme is saying that the Bodhisattva spends a lot of their time probably in subsequent attainment or um, the one that is uh, not in exalted wisdom or in subsequent attainment, but neither. So as the, before they're getting into the uninterrupted path, this is one of the main practices that they are taking to the cushion. Yeah, the exalted wisdom that is neither. The, the method type of realizer, perhaps, when they're on the cushion thinking about it then. But there's a method type of realizer, too, and, and wisdom type. Yeah, the method type of realizer when you're in subsequent attainment is also meditating on other things besides emptiness. Yeah. Okay. Illusion-like nature. Using the method type of realizing when they're off the cushion. This is where we need to just get the questions clear. Okay, so what are we saying about the. In the service. Mm hmm. So the four establishments of mindfulness practiced during the wisdom type realizer and subsequent attainment or the okay well that's why I'm asking to see if we have more information okay fourth next ones which are When I came to these, I said, you know, we're kind of practicing this kind of right now. In a, you know, learning what to abandon and what to cultivate. So there are different types of effort. Okay, so that's eight. Next. What do we have next? Anybody have anything to add to that? Mind instead of intention and investigation instead of analysis. But you can see how these four uh, mental states would help, states of concentration, um, when done um, at this point on the bodhisattva ground. 
because the states of concentration are incredibly important, especially when emanating bodies to benefit others. Okay, the next five faculties of different qualities during meditation. When these qualities become very strong, they can eliminate their negative counterparts. So what do we have here? Okay, so faith eliminates faith. effort, eliminates laziness, mindfulness, which eliminates not being able to keep one's mind on an object, which I would think would be emptiness, and concentration eliminates distraction, and wisdom eliminates wrong view and ignorance. And then um, Venerable says when these faculties become developed, they become known as the five powers, which is another set. So these are the five powers that we have spoken of before. They're different powers. Okay. And I don't know which, what those five powers are. She did not list them when she taught them. Okay. Okay. I did, she didn't have an explanation when I re-listened to the teaching. Okay, then we go into the seven enlightenment factors. Correct mindfulness, discernment of phenomena, effort, rapture, pliancy, concentration, and equanimity. And these factors help a bodhisattva refine the union of serenity and insight. And then lastly, the noble eightfold path. Correct view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, mindfulness, concentration, and effort. Well, that's how she put them when I, yeah. Okay, so it's because it's part of the, uh, it's the ethics. These can be subsumed into the three higher trainings. So um, when I was listening to uh, Venerable's teaching on this, said that the ground, this is ground is called the radiant because it helps cultivate both the subtle and coarse forms of the 37 harmonies. The subtle form is focused on eliminating the view of inherent existence of person and phenomena, and the coarse form of the 37 is focused on el- eliminating the view of the self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So there must be different stages of the bodhisattvas meditation on this where these things just get more and more refined and focused on eliminating these different wrong views. But there was no more um, specifics about what you said. Anything else folks want to add on this? There's some hummus. Pretty straightforward. four bases I have no idea what level of effort what level of mindfulness gets repeated sometimes in the different grounds these are the questions that we can ask Venable when she returns
Yeah, because there's an effort in the five faculties. There's an effort in the four bases of spiritual powers, too. So, Yep. So let's put that down. What's the difference? Okay. So that was the first. That was question number 13. Number 14. This one I don't have. I need some help on this one. Um, what are the pure and impure grounds, and why are they so called? I have two sentences here. <laughs> I looked and did not find. So um, the second to the lower eighth ground are called the impure grounds because a bodhisattva's mental continuum is still not free from the innate afflictions that give rise to the grasping at true existence. From the upper ground, eighth ground, to the tenth, the bodhisattva is free of these innate afflictions and is now working on the uh, obstructions to omniscience which eliminate the subtle appearance of true existence once and for all. That's kind of, that came off of Jeffrey Hopkins' book. I didn't track it in the teaching. Does anybody else have something different? Okay. and the grasping. So even... Straightforward questions that we've had. (laughs) That didn't require a lot of uh, uh, searching and analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now we come to number 15, which I think is probably... This was the, the one that I enjoyed doing on a personal side, and it is an interactive question. So I think Venerable wants us to check in to find out, you know, what did this all really do for us this past, I think it's been over a year, of listening to the teachings on the grounds and paths. And so number 15 is, how has studying the paths and grounds related to your Dharma practice, and what benefits have you received from studying these? So this is something that maybe we can... um, I would actually like to uh, pass the microphone around so people could really personally just give their own experience because I think this is really important for people who are um, watching and I think for each of us so that I don't have to repeat everybody's answers and people can hear. Venerable Jigme will tell first. Um, So uh, when I first started um, hearing these teachings, I remember the first thing I did was get quite um, uh, discouraged. It really, you know, kind of hit me that, gosh, this takes so long. But as Venerable got into it and started uh, describing the qualities that you attain on the path, then it switched to really feeling inspired. Um, so it's kind of like through this process I uh, got my uh, view clearer about just how long this takes um, uh, more realistically I think I hold it now and um, the other thing that uh, I learned that really is informing my practice trying to have it inform my practice more is how important the accumulation of merit is. That it is crucial and that there are so many, just hundreds of opportunity every day if I can keep my mind uh, in that and uh, uh, 
meet things with uh, generating, you know, a virtuous mind and uh, then accumulate merit and keep uh, just connected to that uh, because there's so much merit that needs to be accumulated to progress. So those are the things that came to my mind. We need some. I'll do mine and then maybe folks can (laughs) think about share. Okay, so this is what I wrote about. Um, This has been an extremely, um, very deep and profound uh, teaching for me. And the reason was that it helped me to alleviate the pressure I put on myself to have to be somewhere in my practice by now. That it takes as long as it does is reaffirming to me that this path is hard work. So each day I keep my commitments. I try and confess and purify what I think is getting in the way of my bodhisattva aspiration. I listen to the teachings and think if they make sense or not, ask questions. I try to confront my self-centered thought and seeing it as the real thief and as the killer of my joy that it is. Helping others and be kind. I also try and remember to say to myself, showing up every day, doing my best, is helping me create the causes and conditions to be a bodhisattva in the future. And letting go of how long it takes. I think of the years that I've been practicing, which aren't that many, I have always had a sense, a leaning towards discouragement when I think about these three countless great eons. And through the course of this past teaching, I have rarely thought about three countless gradients. I've kind of worked my way out of that and have a sense of relief. It's going to take that long. I'm accepting where I am and I'm just happy to be creating the causes. Transforming the, uh, let's see, transforming my mind, cultivating my good qualities is never ending. But that, the other thing that was very important this time for me that kind of woke up in my mind is that all along the way, there is this very precise roadmap that lays out the purpose, the process, the obstacles, the speed, the scenery, the destination. Prior to this teaching, and I shared this this morning in in the motivation, is I thought that bodhisattvas came from some other planet. They don't come from this mishmash, this chaotic world of sentient beings. They come from Bodhisattva University out there far, far away. But they do arise from samsara. They were just like us. By thinking about what bodhisattvas practice, how determined and committed they are, and how joyful they are as they go along, reassures me that if I keep hearing, thinking, and meditating on the Dharma, and show up especially when my self-centered mind is saying, no way, that I will progress to one day, one life, to have spontaneous bodhicitta, beginning with deep conceptual understanding of emptiness, then a direct perception. My afflictions and ignorance will one day be eliminated along with all of their stains. So I think more than any other time in my practice, this teaching that Venerable has given has, and I'm saying this not from anywhere, but a really, uh, uh, a place in my heart that really believes this. And so I was it has been quite a profound uh, year for me to listen to the teachers. It's going to be very simple, and I'm going to be honest. <laughs> um, 
when I was listening to the teachings, for me, all the language was very difficult. And um, a part of me was saying, I can get it. But what I got out of that is that more I continue to practice, I'm hold into that compassion that is behind all of that, all behind my, my wrong conception. So I remove all the difficult words and everything and say, keep doing what you're doing here, what you're being taught, and that's where you're going. Being able to feel all that compassion and being able to give it, which I hope <laughs> that I will be able to really open to that. So that's my little sense. I think what uh, stands out for me in hearing these teachings this year is to learn really what I'm taking refuge in. And before hearing these teachings, I thought I knew what I was taking refuge in. And I thought I knew about the qualities of the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And um, it was just um, mm, very, very limited. And then as we heard about, uh, especially the uh, how one progresses in the Mahayana path, um, just these amazing qualities that these bodhisattvas develop on each level, which go beyond what my imagination could possibly um, wrap my mind around, even even just to uh, imagine. And so, as Venerable Jigme mentioned, this importance on creating merit and also understanding emptiness and developing this vast wisdom, which is going to get rid of all of the ignorance, is really quite exciting. Um, and then to also see these qualities that the Buddhists have, I and mean, it's so humbling. I mean, you know, uh, as a sort of a silly example, when I first heard about someone being um, adopted, for example, I thought my parents were hold withholding a great secret from me. And I thought, well, I must be adopted, because I've just found out about what that means. Um, but now, you know, every now and then, someone will say, well, you know, Maybe we're all too close and we don't know it. Well, that's not the case. I mean, if we're, on, if we're on the path of accumulation, we know that we're on the path of accumulation. So I think once we're there, it will be so exciting. And so I know it's possible to drop back down from that point, but just to have those qualities even at that point would be just incredible. Uh, what else do we have? Um, I think that's all. I'm a lot like Venerable Jigme in that I had a lot of trouble with the words and mostly I learned a lot when I went back and studied stuff and the first time I, my, even my notes aren't always so grand it all goes so fast but then within you know, being able to go back and look at things um, I think the things that I take away from this one are it feels very sequential and it feels like um, as we kind of progress through it and when you think of kind of working your way back, it all makes sense to me in a way that seems more realistic than it ever did. It always seemed more kind of high in the sky and outlandish, kind of outlandish to me. Um, and I think for some reason 
I think the reason it seems different to me now is because I think it has to do with this distinction between what's happening with your realization of emptiness, that the object is the same. And this, this thing that the mind, the wisdom of the mind is deepening because your ignorance is kind of being washed away slowly, slowly. And it's the recognition that I think because I had this view for the longest time before I had much uh, teachings that I thought enlightenment was like quick. You know, it was just boom, there you were. And, and that got corrected, but still there wasn't anything that kind of filled it out. And so when we started this, I was like, well, what are these zillions of afflictions that they're going to get rid of? And I thought they would just lay it out at each level. And in a way they didn't, and in a way they did. Because I realized after, when we went through the Bodhisattva Bhumis that the way they talk about what you're eliminating, um, although they don't get specific beyond the name, you know, we have the two types of obscurations, and then there's, you know, innate and acquired and innate and that. But then they go just bigger the middle, little middle, all that stuff. And that doesn't really tell me, like, what's happening in my mind. And so that didn't get answered so directly, but it got answered in a way kind of indirectly by seeing what qualities were developing. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that because this thing of the object is, the object that you're seeing in meditative equipoise on emptiness directly doesn't so much change, but the mind that's realizing it is changing. And, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is this role of merit in, the, in really seeing just from my own experience how it makes a difference in my ability to learn. And I actually use that in my daily life, and it explains a few things. Like one time I was reading this biography of Desha Rinpoche, and I was like kind of shocked. Like they took him out of retreat to build a monastery. And I was like, what's that about? Retreat is like number one priority. And I just never understood it. And then now when I, when I look at this, I'm like, well, of course, you know, because, you know, what good is your retreat going to be doing? I mean, this is teacher to come out if, if you don't have enough merit to make it useful. And that's very clear to me now that our mind needs a lot of cultivation. And so, yeah, this thing with merit is huge. And, and it makes more sense to me why people are spending the time, their time the way they spend their time. And it basically helps me on the day-to-day -day level when I think about what I'm doing. And sometimes I might want to get frustrated because I hear about people this week who are spending two years studying the Garjana's text. <laughs> I'm like, I could tell you a lot about grease traps this week, <laughs> but I can't tell you much about, about Nagarjuna's verse 24, chapter 8, you know. And I can get kind of upset about this. <laughs> and then I, then I just balance my mind and I realize in my own experience that I, in my day-to-day -day life here, I, I just say to myself, when I have the time to study, this stuff will go in. And it does. You know, to the degree that I study, it, it feels like it's going in. And I have to make the effort still on my part. So actually, that's kind of how I take it into my day. So the bodhicitta motivation when you're studying about grease traps is really <laughs> a, a merit accumulating uh, experience. Yeah, it makes me actually, you know, my motivations aren't so grand, but it helps me to clean them up a little. <laughs> Since you have to look at grease traps anyway, might as well make it a virtuous experience. Anybody else before we go on to the next question?
Basically, what people have said is also my experience. The thing about getting real, not just real, like like real in terms of um, you don't magically become a Buddha. And I don't think I had that idea really, but it, but the step by step progression is so really clear, and so it also diminishes any kind of pride of either kind, of thinking that you know I can do this, no big deal. Or I'll never be able to do this. Either of those prides is is just wiped out if you just look at it. And so you can, I I think they can relax with the whole thing. Like whatever we're doing is of great value if our mind is in the right place. And so relax. You know, a few countless great eons. As Bob Thurman says, what else you got to do? I mean, Venerable says the same thing. Um, but for me also, um, in all in, in my refuge practice, um, the Sangha refuge has always been a little elusive for me. Not as filled out, not quite understanding what what that's about. And this has completely transformed that. I've done the refuge nundro twice, and now I want to do it again <laughs> because I feel like this piece is... Um, is so much clearer and the refuge is so much clearer and why their examples at whatever level they're at is so much clearer. So this thing about, yeah, they were just like me and look at those minds now and look at those different levels. And so this is something really um, very clear and specific to aspire to. And that's very cool. And the other thing that this has been uh, useful for is uh, it continues to illustrate the dangers of not developing bodhicitta. Um, yeah, I think danger is the right word. Because as you look at all of the um, eliminating the um, um, afflictions and the mind states that are easy to get to, I can see how easy it would be if bodhicitta was not like so strong to just zip off in that direction and say, bye, I'm out of here, guys. Um, and leave everybody behind. So um, it, it's more—it's humbling in that way too, not to make any assumptions about the quality of my motivation right now, and to really work on that. Thank you, everybody. That was helpful to our folks. Yeah, very precious. I agree with the Sangha Jewel. Totally different relationship to the Sangha Jewel. Okay, so then we're on to the final. Um, quiz question, which was to compare the five paths of disciples and the five paths of bodhisattvas. Make a list of the characteristics of each of the paths in ways that they are similar and ways that they are different. So this was a lot of fun and it was really, there's a lot in there. Um, so this is where I will need um, some support and the way that I am um, kind of thought about this when I lined it out as a chart I had the disciple or the here solitary realizers on one side I had the bodhisattvas on the other side and in my chart I had all of the similarities in bold and I had the differences in italics and they're looking they're they're kind of you know paralleling pretty well until they get to the path of meditation and then things just really really change so um, I'll start off with I had some general characteristics that sort of encompass um, sort of the overview of the similarities and the differences, and then we can go into each of the paths. Um, 
Well, I think the, probably the biggest motivation is for the disciple, the motivation is self-liberation, and for the bodhisattva is Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. So I think that's probably, for me, the biggest difference. Um, similarities, the afflictive obscurations are removed. They both, as Venerable Tarpa said, the, the emptiness, they both directly perceive as the same. Um, the arhat uh, achieves, well, our hotship is achieved in three lifetimes. The hero has a hundred eons. I'm sorry, the solitary realizer has a hundred eons. And the, uh, to, to, um, if you're a hero, it's three lifetimes to become an arhat. However, if you're a bodhisattva, it's three countless great eons. So the time in which um, it takes to become a Buddha is compared to our hotship is very different. And when you get to the path of meditation, you can see why also the accumulation of merit makes a huge difference. Um, also, uh, a difference is that the re- um, realizing emptiness, the uh, disciple path, they use one form of reasoning, and um, on the Bodhisattva, they use many forms of reasoning in uh, deeper and deeper um, levels of that. Um, the disciple sees the defects of cyclic existence in terms of their own liberation, and bodhisattvas see the defects of cyclic existence in terms of freeing all beings. And the um, disciple path has five paths and eight grounds, and the bodhisattva has five paths and ten grounds. Those are just the very general. As we get into the path, they get to be much more specific. That, that seemed to be sort of, for me, kind of the major general characteristics of the of the differences. Um, okay. And then also too, this is one that I wanted to have a little bit of help with. They eliminate the difference is, let me check and see that on the disciples path they eliminate the, the ignorance that sees the self as self sufficient, substantially existent, and the bodhisattva it eliminates the ignorance that sees the self and phenomenon as empty of any inheritances. What is the self? What is the self? Gating. Right. Right. But for a bodhisattva, you to become a Buddha, you still are the same. Self-sufficient. Ex- that's what I'm saying is the Bodhisattva path. What is it that they're, once they get past that. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. But what makes the difference that brings the Bodhisattva farther along in the path to Buddhahood? Are they still working on seeing the emptiness of the self-sufficient, substantially existent self, or are they looking at something more subtler once they pass into the path of meditation and and eliminate all the innate afflictions? Is there a different kind of self, which are the appearances? Okay. It's the obscurations. Right. The, the, the latencies, okay, 
Okay. So there is no difference on the object that there, the ignorance. Okay. 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 Thank you. I still have a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that both the, the disciple path and the bodhisattva path, the, they're negating the same object, which is seeing the self as self-sufficient, substantially existent. Well, that's what I'm, that's okay. That's what I'm asking is, which, who's, both, okay. So where does the self-sufficient, substantially existent and the inherently existent self differ? Where are they eliminated? Where is that wrong conception eliminated? And subtle. Okay. So I'm not sure, Kach, I could actually repeat the answer to that question. I'm sorry to say. I don't have it clear in my mind right now. Okay, we'll move to the path of accumulation. Okay, all right. Apparently existence of this self and phenomena. Okay, okay. All right. It is. Okay. So, the path of accumulation. We've got some similarities and we have some differences. Um, for the. Do this quickly. Um, for the disciple, uh, generating the determination to be free unceasingly, day and night, is what brings them on to the path of accumulation. And the bodhisattva, although they have the same level of renunciation, uh, it is the arisal of the spontaneous bodhicitta that brings them onto the path of accumulation of the bodhisattva path. So those are differences. Accumulating merit. Both are accumulating merit on the path of accumulation. Refining and cultivating serenity by the power of their concentration to bring about physical and mental pliancy. And both attain an inferential understanding of emptiness in the path of accumulation. Uh, difference, there was the uh, small, middling, and great levels on the path of accumulation for a bodhisattva um, with the analogy of the sick person, the earth, the gold, and the waxy moon. So it gets a little bit more specific on the different, uh, and that's in regards to the bodhicitta. Okay, so those, did anybody have find any other things that were similar or different when it came to the path of accumulation besides those three major things, the merit, the uh, what brings them on, and the work on the Physical mental pliancy. So right from the start, the focus is different. Anybody else got something to add to the path of accumulation? Okay. Path of preparation. Um, both the disciple and the bodhisattva go through the four stages of heat, peak, forbearance, and supreme mundane dharma. It is the last path of being a non-arya for both of them. 
They both have the union of serenity and insight which propels them onto the path of seeing. And during the path of preparation, they both have the conceptual understanding of emptiness. So they have that first, and then the union of serenity and insight propels them onto the path of seeing. So on that one, I didn't have any differences. Anybody found anything that were different characteristics for them? And once again, this is a real general one. I didn't get into a lot of the detail on this. Okay, path of seeing. They both become Aryas. They both have direct realizations of emptiness. The acquired afflictions are eliminated. They also, um, the eight fortitudes and the eight knowledges in respect to the four noble truths, realizations for them on that path. And then um, this is where terminology starts to change a little bit, is that for the disciple, the exalted wisdom of meditative equipoise, which is the actual antidote to the acquired afflictions, and this is where they have the approacher and the abider and the one that is neither, so they enter into the stream enter. So the approacher is considered to be uninterrupted path, the abider, the liberated, but it's termed differently for the disciple. Or for the bodhisattva, it's just simply listed as um, when they're abandoning the acquired afflictions. They're beginning to be abandoned on the uninterrupted path, and they go simultaneously right into the liberated path and as they are eliminated. So the, the terminology is different, and so the disciple enters the stream enterer at that point. Uh, so that's a difference there in, in language more than experience. Uh, in subsequent attainment, the disciple is practicing the ten paramis, the paramitas. They are not far-reaching. And they're meditating on renunciation, the three higher trainings, seeing things like an illusion, which is during their um, method type, their, um, during their um, off-the-cushion time, method type of real. Huh? Illusion-like, yes, illusion-like, like an illusion. And then um, during the subsequent attainment, the wisdom type of realizer continues to deepen the meditation on emptiness. So the bodhisattva is somewhat similar in that they're, they're also seeing things like an illusion during subsequent attainment. They're practicing the ten far-reaching practices because of their motivation, the bodhicitta, and working on the emptiness, seeing the emptiness of the practices. Their, their um, bodhicitta is very much in their mind. Renunciation is in their mind during the, um, the method type of realizer when they're off the cushion meditating. And then the wisdom type of realizer as the disciple continues to deepen their meditation on emptiness. That's what I had for slight differences on the paramitas. And um, that was pretty much... And then the bodhicitta for the bodhisattva, really keeping that in their mental continuum as much as possible. So here the disciple is the approach and abider to stream enter is what happens on this path for them. And for the bodhisattva, they enter the first bodhisattva ground. They're both accumulating merit, although it seems that the bodhisattva is accumulating vast amounts of merit. They're both eliminating the three fetters, the view of the personal identity, the view of the unethical conduct as supreme, and deluded doubt. Also, similarity. Okay, so then when we get to the path of meditation, this is where things start to get interesting, and this is where I will need some support. I'm going to read what I have here because I went over this many, many times. So on the disciple path, the exalted wisdoms of meditative equipoise serve as the actual antidote to the innate grasping at true existence during the stage of approacher 
and abide until once returned. And they're called once returners because they're born in the desire of one more time. So during this approach and abide or stage of non returner they begin to abandon and finally abandon the first six levels of innate afflictions of the desire realm. And they are also working on reducing their sensual desire and malice. On the Bodhisattva's side, exalted wisdom meditative equipoise serves as the actual antidote to the innate grasping at true existence during the stage, the uninterrupted stage, right into the liberated path, having abandoned innate afflictions during each Bodhisattva ground. So during the path of meditation, they've got the, the approach and abider of once returner, the approach and abider of non returner, and the approacher of the arhat, where they're eliminating the innate afflictions. The bodhisattvas, and they do it differently than the bodhisattvas do. And on the bodhisattvas, they do the eliminating of the innate afflictions ground by ground by ground. So we've got the second to the lower eighth going on for the bodhisattva path, eliminating the same innate afflictions but doing them differently in that the disciples do it sequentially. So they do, in the, in the desire realm, they, they eliminate the big of the big, the medium of the big, the small of the big, the big of the medium, the medium of the medium. They, they do them sequentially, and they go from the desire realm to the formless realm, all the concentrations, the form realm, and the formless realms. The bodhisattvas um, eliminate all the big of the bigs of all the three realms, and then all the medium of the bigs of all the three realms. So they do them sort of clumped together from coarse to subtler innate afflictions. Whether the, um, there was no explanation on the difference or the time it takes or um, I'm not sure there was no explanation I could find in Jeffrey's book on um, what makes that different but it was listed as being one of the primary differences. Um, and then the, um, the disciples begin to eliminate the five fetters of sensual desire, attachment to rebirth in the form of formless realms, conceit of the I, restlessness and ignorance. And um, they, so what is probably the biggest difference here on the path of meditation is that the disciple work their way into eliminating all the 81 innate levels of innate afflictions till they become an approacher to arhatship, which is the uninterrupted path. The bodhisattva is not only eliminated all the 81 levels of innate afflictions, but they're starting to work on the cognitive obscurations during the path of meditation. So they've got a lot more work they're doing during the path of meditation than when the disciple the disciples, the hearers in solitary realize are, are doing. So then you can start to understand why it only takes, you know, the three lifetimes or a hundred eons to get to Arhatship, where for Bodhisattvas it takes three countless eons, because these cognitive obscurations, subtler and subtler, evidently take a huge amount of time. Um, the exalted wisdom of subsequent attainment of the disciple is the mind that abides uh, is the thought in the continuum which is intent on the bliss of the peace of oneself. So when the disciple is in uh, the exalted wisdom of subsequent attainment is really getting a sense, a taste of the mind that is going to become liberated. And it is just 
They like almost can taste it at that point. Um, and then the exalted wisdom of subsequent attainment of the Bodhisattva. They're focusing on three states of medi- during meditation of aspiration, dedication, and rejoicing. So they're building up that kind of thinking in their mental continuum. So they're rejoicing. They're aspiring for Buddhahood. They're thinking about others. They really um, keep rejoicing in what they're doing and, and where they are. And they're also practicing the ten far-reaching practices and have those mental states going on as well. So they're doing that for the the benefit of others and they're also doing it within the sphere of emptiness and with the bodhicitta motivation. So this is where they're getting so close and you can really see the separation of the motivation and why they're doing what they're doing and why they're going where they're going. Um, And then the path of no more learning and then also the bodhisattvas during the path of of meditation are then cultivating all these qualities that we've been hearing about this exponential increase of being able to emanate and being able to help sentient beings and being able to make offerings and being able to do all these trillions limitless things by cultivating this huge amounts vast amounts of merit so that's going on in the path of meditation too so then you can see why it takes those eons and then lastly is the path of no more learning this is where the disciple becomes an arhat, the clear realizer, the mind that has exhaustively abandoned all the 81 innate afflictions. The arhat has a very subtle mental body, which is still due to the obstructions to omniscience. So they still have some sort of body until the Buddha wakes them up and sends them back. The, the bodhisattva, the clear realizer, the mind that has exhaustively abandoned the two obscurations, completed all the good qualities, such as the ten powers, the four fearlessness, the eighteen shared qualities of a Buddha. They have this 32 major and 80 minor marks, and they've got the three bodies of the Buddha, this mind that just can emanate. They've got the dharmakaya, the, uh, the rupakaya, the nirmanakaya. Um, so they're just being able to emanate countless bodies to be able to benefit. And the last but not least on the path of no more learning, the disciple achieves nirvana without remainder when a meditative equipoise on emptiness out of meditative equipoise refers um, the appearance of true existence is still there. So even though they're arhats, they do amazing things, their practice is profound, when they come out of meditative equipoise, the the subtle appearance of true existence still appears. Where for Buddha achieves non-abiding nirvana, where they do not abide in samsara or nirvana, and they perceive the two truths simultaneously, and there is absolutely no appearance of truth. So by the time we get to the path of meditation, there are some, you know, you can really see where all, where the, 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 the fork in the road is really quite profound as far as what the bodhisattvas are doing and what the uh, disciples um, are doing on their paths. Um, anything to add before we for that? <laughs> it's um, enlightening to um, they're just inspiring. They're just really quite inspiring. I have when I look at the sixteen arhats now in the meditation hall sitting behind the Buddha there, I just love them all. I just love them all. And when I uh, hear about the wonderful bodhisattvas, I am just totally uh, amazed. 
So may we, uh, may we become like them, the bodhisattvas, and to have the arhats as uh, inspirations as well. Um, so hopefully that served uh, everybody. And um, next week, Venerable will return and we'll begin um, a new text. And I can't remember what the name of it is. It has a fair... The Seven Types of Mind, Objects, Cognition. Um, it will be inspiring. It will be challenging. And we will learn a whole lot. So um, let's just uh, take a moment and then we'll do it. Without it. So Donnie says that the explanations we've just been through, which is, um, are, she's still working on getting them beyond theory, and her question about where does Tantra come into play as far as getting to Buddhahood. Um, so we'll see if we can find some more specific answers for her in the future, because that's a question. Where does Tantra enter this whole teaching of grounds and paths which were not listed in this text but they are there we are practicing it and it helps speed up the process it helps speed up the journey so where does that where does that enter the picture so we'll find out the answer to that question sometime in the future I'm sure <laughs> sorry Donnie I can't give you the answer <laughs> okay alright let's dedicate all the merit for listening the cause and conditions to be able to realize everything that we have shared tonight in order to benefit all beings. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzing Gyatso Chenrezi, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma Done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders. Who 
spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Travasti Abbey in the West Flourish.